Well, good morning, family. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue in our study of this book. I enjoy working with my hands back in the analog days, pre-everything being digital. And still today, I I love working with my hands, building things, repairing things. And so uh, I find most do-it-yourself projects to be, for me, a joy, a rewarding challenge. I confess, however, that I often take on projects. Somebody will ask me, can you do this? Usually it's my wife, and she says, can you do this? And I just go, oh, sure. You know, and then after she says it, I'm saying to myself, I mean, how hard could it be? You know, <laughs> never done it before, but, you know, no big deal. Well, a few weeks ago, I found myself with the task of replacing an entry door on a house. And um, a couple of days before I was going to do the project, I realized, you know, I haven't replaced an entry door for at least three decades you know, and I wonder what's changed. I wonder uh, all this stuff, and what do I remember stuff? Will I do it right? And and kind of think, realizing that I'm also going to be doing this by myself, and I have a uh, just a few hours to do this from start to finish. And so the night before, I did what wasn't available three decades ago. I pulled out my iPad, and I quickly went to YouTube University, uh, and. Schooled myself, one more, just a real refresher on changing an entry door. Just a few minutes I was able to watch master carpenters go through, explain some things, and, and give some little tips and pointers I'd never thought of. You know, I just, that's why you got a hammer. You know, you can fix that. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, needless to say, the next day the project went smoothly, everything was done. You know, a lesson there. If we're going to undertake something important, something that we really need to do right, and something that we may not know much about, or maybe we, you know, just, we just want to make sure we don't do it wrong, it's a good idea to go and learn from a master, someone who really knows what they're doing. I have a feeling this morning that if we would take a survey, if I would ask us this morning by show of hands to do things, to to rate our skill and our habits of prayer, I wonder how we would do. If we would say, you know, everybody who your prayer life is a 10, and that means I pray like Jesus, raise your hands, you know. You know, and we work our way down to, we get to down to number one, which is I stink, okay? And we, so I give the scale. I have a feeling for most of us, we wouldn't need to give the scale. We already know I'm not, I don't pray like Jesus, and most of us would say, you know, I kind of stink. Or at best, I'm just a point or two above that. So I won't do the show of hands thing because I don't want to embarrass us, but I have a feeling that a whole bunch of us would rank ourselves pretty low. And yet we would say prayer is very important. So today, in just a couple of verses here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we want to go to a master's class. We want to sit in under some masters of prayer and learn about how we should be praying for others, specifically for other believers. Follow along. Again, I hope you have your Bible open. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12. 
To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many things we could take note of, but I just want this morning to call our attention to three. Three particular points, three particular uh, lessons from this, these two verses. The first thing to notice this morning, the first big point, is about the priority of prayer. I say the priority here of his prayer because Paul is writing, but he tells us back up in the, the beginning that it... This letter is being written by Paul along with Silvanus or Silas. We would also know him by that name. And Timothy. And Paul here says that to this end we, so this is Paul and team, Paul and company. To this end we always pray for you. Now that word always here doesn't mean that this is the only thing they do. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 60 minutes out of every hour, Paul and Silas and Timothy are praying for the Thessalonians. That's obviously not what he means. What he does mean by this is we pray consistently, we we pray persistently, we pray passionately when we pray for you. And also, in using this word always here, he's, he's indicating that when we pray, these things that he's going to mention in the next phrases and sentences are the things that we consistently pray for you. So when we pray, we are always praying these things. So again, it's, our ears should perk up. This is a good way to pray for our believing friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to look very hard or very far to see that Paul thinks that prayer is a big deal. For one thing, it it goes all through this short little book. A few verses earlier in verse 3 of this chapter, Paul says that they should always be praying, giving thanksgiving to God for this church. And now here in these verses, verses 11 12, he He describes for us the prayers that they pray for this church. Chapter 2, verse 13, he again says that, not now just that they, earlier he said they should always give thanks, now he says they continually give thanks to God for these believers. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, Paul prays a prayer of blessing upon this church. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul requests for prayer from this church for Paul and Silas and Timothy in their ministry. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Paul prays another prayer of blessing upon them. Not only does prayer run through this little book of Thessalonians, but if you go through the other letters of Paul, the other 12 letters of, in the New Testament that where Paul signs his name, this is from him, you will notice that prayer runs through all of those letters. Every one of the 13 letters of Paul either talks about prayer or he records a prayer for the recipients and usually both and usually multiple times through each letter. 
I call our attention to that. To the fact that Paul considers prayer important and it's a priority here so that he says we should always and we do always pray for you. I call our attention to that because I think most of us here today who would rank ourselves, you know, well, my prayer life struggles. Most of us find it difficult to make prayer a priority. Difficult to spend much time in prayer. We might want to, we might even intend to, but we struggle. For some Christians, an average day of prayer is maybe a little, when they get up in the morning, maybe a good morning, Lord. Maybe a few words of thanksgiving, a few words before each meal during the day. Maybe before they go to sleep at night, a short little prayer to God. Thank you, God, for the day. Now I lay me down to sleep, you know. And then during the day, a few little urgent prayers, you know, when they're in the parking lot and they need a parking space. Oh, Lord, please help me to find a space. I'm late. Or you're in class, student, and it's test day. Oh, Lord, I know I should have studied more, but please help me to pass. Those kind of things. Or someone we care about had an accident or got ill and is in the hospital and we suddenly find ourselves moved. Oh, I need to be praying. That describes an awful lot of Christians and their prayer life. I think most of us know that our prayer life should be more than just habitual prayers, you know, before meals or whatever. More than just crisis prayers. I've got an urgent need, a big need. We know that we need time for confession We know that we need time for worship in prayer. We know that we need time for intercession for others. We know we need time to pray and to listen to God. But there's, doesn't it seem like there's always just so much else to do? So we intend to pray, but we got up late. A few of you probably struggle with that, like me. And so we're rushing, well, I'll pray later, but then there's this comes up and that comes up and there's this demand and that demand and, and then we get home and I'll, you know, I'll have time when I get home, but we get home and there's another list of things to do or another phone call that comes in and suddenly the evening is gone and we find ourselves at the end of the day going tomorrow. Sound familiar? Anyone? I'm sure that Paul was an extremely busy man. Preaching, teaching, studying, preparing, writing, traveling, strategizing, dealing with the myriads of people who are demanding his time. And yet Paul and Silas and Timothy say, we always pray for you. We're faithful, we're consistent. We're intentional, we are deliberate, we take time. Reminds me of the great reformer Martin Luther. He is famously quoted as saying that he prayed for two hours a day 
unless he was busy. And then he prayed three hours a day. He's quoted as saying, I have so much to do today, I will spend an extra hour in prayer. I marvel at that. Do you? That is counterintuitive and counter to most of our nature. And so I wonder what it is that moved someone like Martin Luther or that moves here the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and moves them to devote themselves to prayer, to much time in prayer, to fervent prayer. What is it that motivated and moved them? And I think the key is found here in the first three words of verse 11. What does it say there? To this end. The way the New International Version translates it, it says, with this in mind. It means because of this, therefore, it's words that send us back to what came ahead of this. And there we'll find the motivation that drives him to his knees and says, we need to pray for you. Well, if you were here last week, you will remember what came before. If you weren't, I'll go back and review, or in case you were here last week but were sleeping or short, or you have a short-term memory problem like I do. Actually, I have a great memory. It's just very short. That's why it's a short-term memory. Verses 5 through 10. The Apostle Paul, you recall, was reminding the people in Thessalonica that actually he didn't have to remind them that the kingdom is coming. He says in verse 5, you are living for the kingdom. You're looking toward the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a new era coming, a new age. Things are going to change. The kingdom of God is coming. And you're living for that and you're suffering because you're living for Christ's kingdom. What he reminded us of last week is when Jesus Christ comes, things are going to change. And there is going to be a judgment upon all of those who have not believed, have not received the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those who do not have a relationship with Jesus. It says there is eternal judgment coming upon them. He also reminded us that there is another thing that Jesus is bringing, and that is that He is bringing eternal life and heaven and glory to those who have received, who have believed the Gospel of Christ. Those realities are what drove the urgency and the fervency of Paul's prayers. Life is short And the one difference between whether people endure an eternity of hell and destruction or whether they they enjoy an eternity of eternal life and glory and fellowship with God, the one difference is what they do with Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. That's what drove Paul. That's what moved him to make the mission that Jesus left us with a priority. We are to be his witnesses, Acts 1.8. Matthew 28.19, the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples. Paul took that seriously. That became 
Everything that drove him, that was the most important thing in his life, save knowing Christ. That was number one. That I may know Him. And then that He might be about His business. And that's why he prayed so fervently for these people. That they might continue in walking with Christ and that they might be busy embracing the mission. May I suggest that the fervency or the lack of fervency in our prayer life is in direct proportion to how much we believe these truths. This life is short. Jesus Christ is coming back. There are two eternal destinies, hell and heaven. And the difference between where someone will spend eternity is the gospel of Jesus. If we really believe that, it will change everything. I love a statement I heard John Piper make a number of years ago at a pastor's conference. He said, when we get to heaven one day, we will discover the purpose of social media. And its purpose is to prove that our prayerlessness was not for lack of time. And for those of us who don't spend a lot of time on social media, we can't relax. That was one way that we waste time. All of us find many ways to fritter away our time, don't we? Instead of praying. Let's move on. He moves from the priority of his prayer in verse 11 to the petitions of his prayer, the things that Paul is praying for, the things that he's going to God and asking, God, would you do this for these dear Thessalonian believers, these dear young believers in Christ? And I wonder, if we were making up his prayer list, what would we put on this prayer list for the Thessalonians? Knowing that we've received the reports that there in Thessalonica, the persecution has come upon them intensely. These dear young believers are suffering for their faith. They're paying a cost for following Jesus. How would we write out a prayer list for them? I imagine number one on our list, most of us, would be, Dear God, please be with our dear brothers and sisters there in Thessalonica. Would you protect them, please? And would you rescue them from their tormentors? And Father, would you provide their needs? Because they're suffering, probably some of them have lost their jobs because of their faith. Some of them may have lost their homes. They need food. Lord, meet their needs. I imagine if we were writing out a list, those would be the top things on our list. But they don't make Paul's list at all. It's not that it's wrong to pray for our needs or the needs of others. In the model prayer Jesus gave to us to give us an outline for how we should pray the Lord's Prayer, as we commonly call it, you get down a little bit and he gets to give us this day, this day our daily bread. It's not wrong to pray for our needs. It's good to do so. But as Paul is writing just very briefly here, here's the really important things we're praying for. It's not their bread. 
not a job. It's not their housing situation. It's not even their safety. Three things that probably might surprise us. See, because the vast majority of our time, we tend to focus our prayers on our physical needs, health, food, you know, material needs. We tend to focus on protection, keep so-and-so safe, keep everybody safe from COVID, and comfort. You know, Lord, the Thessalonians there, they could probably use a 13-passenger chariot. Make it easier to get people to church. It's for the ministry, you know. None of that's on his list. Three things. First thing on the list. That our God may make you worthy of His calling. Verse 11. He's praying for godly character. May God enable these Thessalonians to live up to their destiny. Up to what God has called for them to be, not only now, but in the future. The Bible says that when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, a number of really wonderful things happen at that very moment. The Bible says that we are passed from death into life. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. 1 John 1.12 when someone receives Christ, when they trust in Him, they have the right to become, they're given the right to become the children of God. They instantly become a child of God. John chapter 3, move on, says we are born again. There in verse 16 of John chapter 3, we know well, for God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him has eternal life. Not will have eternal life one day, but you have it right then. The moment someone becomes a believer, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, they become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The moment someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, again, they become a child of God. It goes on to say in verses 15 to 17, an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have a wonderful inheritance. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says that we have become citizens of heaven. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your citizenship is transferred from Lake St. Louis, Missouri, United States of America, to heaven. And we could go on. That's just the, the scratching the surface of things that happen immediately when we become a believer in Jesus Christ. They are blessings that God has given to us by His grace. They're guaranteed by His Word because He's declared it so. But they're things which aren't apparent yet. So many of the things on that list. I can look at you and I can't see that true of you any more or less than anybody else in the world. Physically, you don't look any different than your unsaved neighbor in terms of these things. Last week, we, I read a verse from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. Just one of those things from the list. When you became a believer in Christ, you're a child of God. You're a child of God now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when He appears, when Jesus Christ comes back, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's a great transformation coming where what God has declared us to be, and it is, it is what we are now because God has said it is what we are, but it has not yet been realized, has not yet been made apparent, and it won't be until that day. But Paul is saying, what I want for you, Thessalonian brothers and sisters, and as well by extension, what he would pray for us if he were here today, is that you and I live up to that calling. Everything that God has declared we are, that we live up to that now. You're a child of God. Then live a life where you resemble your Father. Live a life of holiness and purity, of grace, of love, compassion, humility. You're headed for heaven. Then live a life of the priorities of heaven, not the priorities of earth. Live a life where you value the things that last forever, where the things of this earth, they're not evil. We are to enjoy the good things as good gifts from God, but we're not to cling to them. We are not to love them. We are not to hunger and thirst after the stuff that's passing away. Don't get caught up in the trinkets of this earth that are momentary. But instead, do as Jesus called us to do. Lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Instead of laying up your treasures here. See, that's what Paul is calling us to do. Live up to our destiny. In the midst of a culture, in a, in a situation of persecution and suffering, he's praying that these believers will demonstrate the joy of people who are destined for heaven. And so the sufferings and the persecutions of this life here, they endure them with joy because they're just for a short time and the glories of heaven are forever. And He's calling for you and me who are living in the lap of luxury to not get enamored with luxury, but to be enamored with Christ Himself, the giver of every good gift, And to be busy about the mission. The second thing he prays for. First, godly character. Secondly, the second half of verse 11. Where he says, may he make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. That word resolve literally means, it's a compound Greek word that means a good desire. And so if we put it literally, what it says is, May He, may God fulfill every good desire for that you have for good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. By the way, what I think he's aiming at here, I'll, I'll just say is impactful living. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are His workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God created us for good works, and He prepared those before we were ever born, even before the world was made. He writes to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, to those of us who are rich in this world's stuff, and He says that 
they are, us rich people, are to be to do good and to be rich in good works. Later on in this book, in chapter 3, right near the very last verses, he says, do not grow weary in doing good. Doing good, we can find all through the New Testament, is something that we as believers in Christ are to be busy about in doing. We are to be doing good works so that our light may shine before men, Jesus said, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. We're to be busy about good works. And so I've had some people ask me in times past, when we've talked about good works here, they say, well then what good works does God want me to do? And there's a lot of good ways to answer that question. One of them would be, I think, just to, well, what's in front of you? (laughs) Is there a good work in front of you? Needs doing, get busy, do it. That's a good answer. Another good answer, and I think it's the answer that it's the reason given here, or the answer given here in this passage, where he says, May God fulfill every resolve or every good desire that you have to do good. In other words, what good works should you do? The good works you desire to do. Did you wake up this morning and think, you know, I should take a meal to so-and-so. I should give so-and-so a call. I should start serving in the food pantry. You have a desire in your heart or an inkling in your heart to do something good? May God enable you, fulfilling you that desire to do good. That's the prayer. Maybe it's a desire or just an inkling to teach a Bible class or to go share the gospel with a coworker. Or maybe it's an inkling, a little nudge to do something that nobody wants to do. Take the trash out. Go clean the toilets. Go befriend grumpy Bob, the neighbor down the street. Or maybe He gives you the desire to take your unique abilities, your unique gifts, and to use them. Invent something if you're so inclined. Write something if you can write. Create something if you're artistic or musical. Anything that serves others or glorifies God, hopefully both, Do it. Like a man named Truett Cathy, who in 1946 decided to start a restaurant. From the beginning, his priority wasn't business. It was a higher calling. Even though he has gone on to heaven today, the corporate purpose still reads, I checked it this morning on the internet, as we exist to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Or maybe like a man named Stanley Tam. Stanley Tam was born with a passion growing up in the Depression. He was born with a passion to make money. But as also as a Christian, he had a passion for people to, to know and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1940, he realized he should try to put those two together. 
And he founded a company. And he, as he founded the company, it was, I'm going into partnership with God and I'm giving 51% of the profits to God. And he did. 51% of the profits were given to fund missions. 51% of it was a corporation and he had God own 51%. He only owned 49 But a number of years later, in in 1955, he thought, you know, that's still not right. He decided that he would give 100% of it to God, 100% of the business and 100% of the profits. He went on to glory, but still today, all the profits of U.S. Plastics Corporation fund mission work around the world getting the gospel of Jesus Christ to places where it has not been before. You see, doing those good works that God puts on our heart to do aren't just teaching Sunday school or even working in the nursery or, you know, or sharing the gospel with someone. Those are good things, but it might be starting a business using your unique ability. Colossians says, Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever your hands find to do, work at it with all your might as if working for the Lord. You know, he's writing that to slaves who have no choice about what they do. But he says, when you do that, he says, working with your hands, working with all your heart as if you are serving the Lord. And he says, it is the Lord Christ you serve when you do that. Whatever your hands find to do, turn it into good. When you have the inclination to do something good, do it and do it for the Lord. And Paul says, my prayer for you Thessalonians is whatever it is God puts in your heart, good to do, I'm praying God enables you to succeed for His glory. What a marvelous prayer to pray for your brother and sister in Christ, isn't that? God, fulfill whatever good desire that they have to do good. The third request. May God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. And we wonder what work of faith is He talking about? What's a work of faith? Very simply, a work of faith is living out what we say we believe is simply taking what we say we believe, put it into practice. I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, I'm going to do what He says. I'm going to obey Him even when it's difficult. I'm going to dare to do what God's Word says. Putting our faith into practice every time we refuse to do what God's Word says is wrong. I refuse to do it. Putting our faith into practice every time that we stand for what's right, even when it is unpopular or it is costly. Putting our faith into practice every time we aim to share the good news of Jesus with someone else. The Apostle Paul recognizes that it's difficult for you and it's difficult for me to do those things, isn't it? Sometimes it's very difficult to obey the Word of God. Sometimes it's very difficult to take a stand. Sometimes it's very difficult to open our mouth and share with this person 
what we need to share with them. The good news of Jesus. So Paul says, Father, for my dear Thessalonian friends, fulfill every act, every work of faith. Every time they step out and say, I need to do this, give them the power, he says, to do it. Father, may they have godly character. Character that lives up to their calling. Father, help them to have impactful living. And may they have a powerful faith that doesn't back down when the pressure comes. Father, You empower them to move on. What a wonderful prayer request. I think this ought to change how we pray, shouldn't it? But there's something else here. We look at the reason why. What is the purpose of his prayer? Verse 12. Why does he pray these three things? Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does He want these things so desperately to be in their lives and so desperately and in your life and mine? So that Jesus will be glorified. That it's going to be so obvious when people look at you, when they look at me, when they look at these Thessalonian believers, that it's going to be so obvious that that what is going on in their life is not normal. The glory of Christ is reflected in us so brilliantly as we live up to our calling that people go, wow, there's something there. That we stand for Christ in faith. They wonder, how is it these folks are enduring this persecution and they're joyful about it? It gets the attention. Paul says, And it brings forth glory to Jesus Christ. Hopefully it brings forth glory to Christ in that some of these people who see this want to know what's going on and they end up following Jesus Christ themselves because they listen to the Gospel because they see it being fleshed out in our lives. But even if they don't, I'm reminded of an encouragement given by the Apostle Peter, what he wrote to some other believers, not here in Thessalonica, but in another place, who were also suffering for their faith. And over in First Peter chapter 2, but he writes this, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. He wants these things to be so true in our life that it's unmistakable to the unbelievers around us even those who are hostile, even those who are the persecutors. So the day of judgment, when they stand before God, He says that in that setting, they give praise to God because you were in their life. God, I didn't listen, but I couldn't miss the truth. My friend... Steve over there, my neighbor, 
He lived it and he spoke it. But I wouldn't listen. But I have to give praise to you, God. You put a faithful man like that in my life. That's what Paul is praying for. That our lives bring glory to God in every way. One more just remarkable thing. I can't end without noticing this. You notice, he says that he may be glorified in us. And did you notice that next little phrase? And you in him, according to the grace of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that not only is he glorified in us, but we're going to be glorified in him. If these prayer requests are fleshed out in our lives, then when we get to heaven and we get to glory, again, verse 5 through 10, Jesus is going to be honored and glorified through our lives. Us, we who were worthy of nothing but hell and by the grace of God have been given a means of salvation through Jesus Christ, And we have been redeemed, rescued from the penalty of our sin and given the glories of heaven. And we deserve nothing else. And so we desire to live worthy of Christ. And we give Him glory in the way that we live. And we get to heaven and there's more glory being given to Him because of the way we live. Not only from us as believers, but one another as believers as we marvel, as it says, about what God has done in us. We're going, look at what God did in you. Wow! Because I knew you on earth. Whoa! You know? And the unbelievers are going to be giving praise to God for you. And then he says, in all of that, as Jesus is glorified, we're riding on his coattails and we receive more glory. That's what he's saying. Us glorified in him. It's God's grace upon grace upon grace. He just keeps giving to us unbelieving people. All of this is motivation for us to follow in Paul's footsteps say, wow, this is big. I should be praying like this for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've got a lot to learn, and I want to start today. How about you? Father, we thank you so much for your word. What an encouragement it is as we see our eyes lifted up just a little bit of how we should reorient our prayers Father, we confess that we so often just get caught up in the things that don't matter, the things of this world that are passing away, and we fail to be busy about the things that really matter. You give us the opportunity to live for You here on this earth. You give us the opportunity to pray, to come before You, to present our petitions and our prayers You give us the opportunity to pray for one another. And as we pray, your word says, you respond, you answer our prayers. You hear them and you answer. And we get to participate with you in what you do. And yet we often just neglect it. Forgive us of that. Father, would you change that? Even as Paul prayed for these Thessalonians that you would make these requests fleshed out and real in their life, May You do that in us. And may You enable us and and move us to begin praying more like Paul and Silas and Timothy did 
as we pray for one another. As we pray for our missionaries, it will no longer be God bless the missionaries. But may we pray like this for them. These things we ask in Jesus' name.